0: As we close off, I want to bring you a message called Faith Comes by the Work. The Word of God, the will of God, but also by the work of God. I'm going to jump straight in. Today's text is the book of Philippians. We're going to look at chapter 2. We're going to look at 2 verses, 12 and 13. Again, all today's notes are in the Bible app. If you have the Bible app by you version, all you got to do is in the right-hand corner, uh, bottom right-hand corner, click on More, click on Events, Type in Lighthouse Church Dublin, and all of today's notes are there for you to track along. But the book of Philippians is, is a very, very interesting book. And like I said before, it's not the book of the Philippines, as in Filipino people. Uh, although Filipino people are so amazing, they should have their own book. If you've never had a Filipino friend, you are missing out in life. I mean, I think of those spring rolls, those noodles, Ube, just, just Filipino joy is so, is so infectious. They're always so happy. I've never met a mean Filipino. Not saying they don't exist. I just said I've never seen evidence of one. They're all so kind. It's like, I imagine if I ever go to the Philippines and go to prison, they're probably all the nicest prisoners in the world. Like so kind, so smiling. It's like, wow, you guys are amazing. It's an amazing nation. We're so blessed to have so many Filipinos in our church. But Paul's letter to the Philippines is not a letter to the Philippines. It's a city in, in ancient Macedonia, modern day Greece, called Philippi. And if you're from Philippi, you are called a Philippian. And the word Philip is a Greek word, means lover of horse. That's just for free. And so, uh, this is my, my second year theology coming right back live in front of your eyes. So, Philip means lover of horses. And so, Paul, we're told, is in prison in Rome. He's in prison not because he broke a speeding fine and didn't pay for it, he's in prison because he's a Christian. And the scholars date this letter around 61 to 63 AD. He's already done his three missionary journeys. And basically, he's about to be killed for his faith. That's how the story ends. Paul's about to lose his head because he won't compromise on the faith that's in his life. And he writes this letter from prison, first of all, to thank the Philippian church for their generosity. Because one of the things that we don't realize about ancient culture, and this is true right up until like 100 years ago, that if you were uh, thrown in prison for whatever reason, and you didn't have family or friends that would come visit you and meet your needs, whether it be medically or nourishment-wise, bringing food, you would just literally starve to death. Which sounds awful by modern sentiments, but by ancient sentiments, it actually served a good purpose. Because if 70% of your prisoners died of starvation, you never had to put them on trial, and there was no cue uh, for the executioner. So it suited the system that people would die alone starving in prison. Well, the Apostle Paul, thank God, wasn't left like that. The church in Philippi remembered him and sent provisions and messengers to encourage him and to take care of him. And he's so grateful, he writes this letter as a letter of gratitude. Not only that, but the letter of Philippians is unique in that where every other letter the Apostle Paul wrote to churches like ours there's always issues. There's always something happening. Someone was in trouble. Something had to be addressed. But when Paul wrote this letter, it's like, it's like, it's like a, a gold star. It's like this church just seemed to have it together. They're loving well, doing well, serving well. They're living out their faith in a way it's you know, glorifying God. It's like there's no real issue. But despite the fact that there's no real issue, Paul also encourages them that there's more. There's more than just loving and being well. God's got a plan and purpose. God's got work for us to do on the earth. Paul is so uh, appreciative of the Philippian church that he says in chapter 4 verse 1 that they are his joy and they are his crown. What a wonderful compliment. They are his joy and they are his crown. When you read Philippians, what you notice is that even though the apostle Paul is in prison, all over this letter, he keeps mentioning joy, 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 joy. Perhaps one of the most iconic uh, scriptures in the whole Bible is in Philippians chapter 4, where he talks about that we should uh, rejoice always, not be anxious about anything. Like, imagine being in prison, about to die, and writing your friends and hey, don't worry about anything. But in everything, with prayer and petitions, offer up your request to God with thanksgiving, because we know that his peace can guide our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. I mean, that's, that's what it means to be full of faith but in chapter 2 and verse 12 he says this let's follow on together he says therefore and again as i often say if you want to know what therefore is therefore go ahead and read the go ahead and read the first 11 verses he says therefore my dear friends as you've always obeyed not only in my presence but now much more in my absence continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. very interesting verse, because if you're reading this and you're someone who follows Jesus, reads where you're going, well, hang on a second. I thought that the whole point of the gospel was that we don't work for salvation. Isn't that what it says in Ephesians two eight that salvation is not of ourselves, a gift of God that can be received only through faith. So why does it seem the apostle Paul is telling us, to work for our salvation. Well, listen, listen carefully because sometimes we miss this. Paul is not saying you should work for your salvation because we know you can't earn your salvation. The whole point of the gospel being good news is that where religion says you have to earn God's favor, earn God's will, earn God's grace, earn God's mercy, the gospel says you can't earn those things because... God is so perfect, so holy, so far removed from our reality that even the best religious human efforts fall short, even coming close to to, to the goodness of God. the salvation we 're told is a gift, a gift. Jesus died on the cross of Calvary to give us the gift of salvation i 'll break down what salvation means in a moment, and once we have received that gift by faith, we are to work out that gift by faith into our world, in other words. The gift was worked into us by Jesus, but the gift's worked out of us as we, in obedience, align ourselves to God's good purpose and will. The word salvation uh, in the Greek is actually the word, right there is the word soteria, which means to be saved, rescued, redeemed. But in the English language, its Latin root is salve, which means ointment, or embalming, or healing. In other words, salvation is the embalming, healing Work of God in our lives. Literally speaking, to to break it down to to its core form, salvation isn't about one day escaping hell and going to heaven. Salvation is so much more than that. Salvation isn't a gift for one day when. Salvation is a reality we can live in here and now. It is a promise that when Jesus breaks chains in your life, they are broken forever. Whom the Son sets free, he said of himself, shall be free. Indeed when God does something in our lives it's not because we have worked to earn it or we somehow you know made God pity us because of our of our of our of our of our self-flagellation or religious observance. No, it's because God has offered us through his son this gift. When we receive it, God fills us with life and love and hope. He redeems us from the, from the kingdom of darkness. He reconciles us. He restores us. And he welcomes us into relationship with him. Literally, the word salvation means to be made whole, to be made well, to be healed. Healed where? Everywhere fundamentally not just healed physically but healed emotionally and most importantly healed spiritually you go well why is that most important because the most eternal part of our being is our spirit you can fall down and hurt your arm and be healed but one day you're going to die you can have your heart broken and be healed but one day you're going to die but when god heals our spirit he gives us the possibility gifts us the possibility of eternity with him And so Paul is saying, once you've understood how incredible this gift of salvation is, once you've taken hold of what it means to be made whole in a very broken world, from that gift, from that place, begin to live out that salvation, two key words, with fear and trembling. Now that word fear isn't like a, how would you describe it? It Isn't like an unhealthy, uh, draconian, uh, religious type of fear. It's actually reverential fear that when we realize who God is and what God has done and how kind, how gracious, how merciful, how powerful he is, that our, our posture, our response to God shouldn't be one of indifference. Like, like if you are a Jesus follower, we don't throw out the name of God indifferently, like, oh my God, our Jesus Christ. That's not what we do. Why? Because the name of Jesus has power. It's the most powerful name in the world. Listen carefully. When the Irish flag has come and gone and the European Union is something that's only read in the history books, when there's no more United States of America or Lady Gaga or Taylor Swift or Man United, when our entire cultural moment comes to an end and we're all possibly speaking Chinese, who knows? The name of Jesus will still be here. And the name of Jesus will still heal and set free and save and redeem and restore and bring people into right relationship with God. It's not an unhealthy fear. It's a reverential fear. Like, oh my gosh. In light of who God is. This is so amazing that God would do this for me. We work out the salvation. That's been worked into us. Because of the gift of God. Then he says in verse 13. Which is the key verse actually. He says. For it is God who works in you. To will and to act. In order to fulfill. His good purpose i want to say this over your life god has a good purpose for your life it isn't just a utilitarian purpose like serving a purpose god has a good purpose over every single one of our lives and maybe we decide well i don't want that purpose god is so good that he allows us the the ability to choose not to come into that good purpose But for those who are hungry, for those who are dissatisfied with the best the world has to offer, for those who long for something deeper, something more meaningful, there is a good purpose available to us, but it is God who works in us to make that purpose a reality. God's will for us is that we will grow into maturity. As we grow into maturity, we can go in maturity to make our world more like the kingdom that one day will become reality as God's kingdom comes to the earth. We call this in our church extraordinary purpose. That we as ordinary people, broken people, sinful people, selfish people, foolish people, don't make no mistake, I'm not here at the microphone because somehow I'm the standard. I am so not the standard. My family are here, they'll tell you, Jesus is the standard. But God called me to be brave, enough to stand up in front of people and say, hey, even though Ireland's going a certain direction, a hundred million miles an hour, we will not stop talking about and declaring the power of the name of Jesus. There is one name in heaven and under heaven and on the earth to which man will be saved. That is the name of Jesus. And so we have a purpose in God as ordinary people, an extraordinary purpose to make an impact in this world. How do we live out this extraordinary purpose? Well, we live out this extraordinary purpose by the word by the will, but also by doing the work of God. You have a good purpose on your life. To put it simply, this is the main point for today's message. For our faith to work, we need to work our faith. For our faith to work, we need to work our faith faith isn 't i 'm going to challenge some some traditional uh, stereotypes of what faith is, some paradigms, but faith is more than just a feeling, our sentiment, our belief. faith, as we 're going to see, is something much more practical, so three ways we work our faith three practical ways that we can work out our faith live out our extraordinary purpose in the world the first one you're going to love it it's such a popular one everyone when I, when I, in the first service when i put on the screen everyone started applauding there was tears people were fainting it's so powerful you ready for it faith works in obedience <laughs> we love obedience Oh my gosh, I mean, all of us, on our wedding days, it's like, I will obey you, wife. Any of your commands, it's my joy and pleasure to obey you. Come on, and our kids, and our kid, and our, isn't our kids' favorite pastime? Oh, mommy and daddy, how can I obey you? Don't you walk into work on a Monday morning and go, Boss, I'm here for your obedience and good pleasure? Doesn't our world just love obedience? No! We don't love obedience, we hate obedience. We hate having to obey anybody, even ourselves, when you say, "Hey, I want to stop eating crap and get fit." You hate the fact you have to obey yourself. We just don't We have this really weird relationship with obedience. Yet we know intuitively that when we obey good things that are good for good purpose, it leads to our benefit, which makes us even more angry. We're like, "Why is this so hard?" Now when you apply that word into a church context, maybe you're here, not a Jesus, Jesus follower, like Matthew said earlier, you're on the journey. Um, this is exactly your worst nightmare. Like, oh yeah, the whole purpose of the word of God and the whole purpose of church is to make us like slaves, make us religious automatons, religious robots, just go around and do all the right things. No, no, no. It's true that, that the church, and, and, and it can be true of any faith, that obedience can be, can be leveraged against people to control them and manipulate them. But that isn't actually obedience. That's more like slavery. That's more like subjugation. That's dehumanizing people and taking away from their dignity. Why? Because when you break down what the word obedience actually means in the English dictionary, obedience essentially means an accordance. Obedience essentially means agreement. Obedience essentially means that I am willingly going to come in line with whatever it is you're directing. It's not, it's not coercing, that's subjugation. But when I say I'm going to willingly come in under your will, your purpose, direction, it, it is an agreement. In essence, what I'm saying is, it's choosing to agree with God. It's choosing to say, I have my way, and you have your way, but your way is better than my way. I have my plan, you have your plan, but your plan is better than my plan. I have my thoughts, you have your thoughts, but your thoughts are better than my thoughts. Now again, why would we ever choose to agree with God? And the answer is because we've come to realize God's ways are the best ways. We can try and make our way a way. That's very hard, very costly. And if you go on that journey, you've already come full circle and realize, actually, you know what? God's way is better. And again, we can understand this in the context of parenting. Sometimes as parents, we're trying to do our best for our children, right? And sometimes as a parent, you think back to how much of a narky little gremlin you were to your parents and you go, oh my gosh, now I see they were just trying to do their best for my best. Recently I uh, uh, wanted to have a conversation with my son and he's, he's, it was about a year ago so he's probably like 15. And you know how it is you're talking to 15 year old boys it's like, well son, hello father, how was your day? I'm so interested to talk to you and express all my thoughts and sentiments and feelings and would you, like me to di- would, you, would you like me to load the dishwasher? What can I do next for you? Right? Is, that how, is, that how you're, is that how all of our teenagers know? Of course not. It's like, well, son. Uh, how was your day? Uh, what's your plans tomorrow? Uh. It's like, man, it's strangely familiar. Somehow I feel like I'm talking to my son, like my wife talks to me. Maybe I should learn something here. Probably too close to the bone. I said, what are you doing tomorrow? And he goes, oh, school. And what are you going to do then? I'm going to go see some friends. And I said, I need you to cancel your plans. Why? What are you doing? Why are you taking away my freedom? I'm I'm going, because we're going to fly to Sicily. Sicily? Why didn't you lead with that? I'm like, well, there you go. There's the truth. It's like, at first, you thought that my will and purpose for you was to take from you and to steal from you, and attack you, but actually, I want something better for you. God offers us, in the gospel, something better. Yeah. And essentially obedience isn't some, some old-fashioned religious you know, subjugation. It's actually, man, now that I realize God's, God's heart, His disposition towards me, it's like, when you experience the love of God, the natural next step or manifestation of that love is isn't just singing or giving or coming to church. It's something far more profound. It's obedience. In fact, Jesus, the Lord Jesus, just before he was betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before he went on the cross and was murdered, crucified for the sins of the world, just before all happened, he had this very intimate time with his disciples. And in John's Gospel, chapter 14, verse 15, he said this. He said, if you love me, obey me. Like, there it is. What does it mean to be a Jesus follower? If you love Jesus, obey him. Not because you're you're afraid or because you know you have to. There's no kind of religious duty. It's because as I've experienced the salvation that God has worked into me, and as I work that salvation out of me into the world, because of experience, and I'm experiencing his love every single day, the natural response for his love. Is that I love him in obedience. We need to align our lives to God's love. God gives us the opportunity to come under his ways because his ways are the best ways. How do we align our lives to God's love? Well, our time, our talent, and our treasure. All of us have time. And well done. If you're here today, well done. You invested the time of your busy week to be here today. God will bless you for being here. But oh, tomorrow, and Tuesday, and Wednesday, and Thursday, and Friday, are you taking time to be in the Word, as we learned in week one? Are you taking time to be committed to a connect group and growing your faith in Christian community? Are you taking time to look for practical ways to live out your faith in service? Time. Talent. Again, most of us would say, I have no talent. There's probably at least one narcissist in here who knows they're very talented, but the rest of us we I'm not very talented. But even the most untalented person in this room still has something they can use for God's glory. And God doesn't expect us to be something we're not. He isn't playing the comparison game we're playing. All he's asked us to do is, look what I've given you, and will you use it for my glory? God gives us abilities, and, and he gives us giftings, and gives us talents for our pleasure, for our benefit, but also for his glory. And God is looking for you to be something you're not. God's asking, calling, inviting you to step up and work out your faith through working your faith out, through taking your talent and deploying for the glory of God. And of course, nothing challenges quite like the treasure. We love our treasure. And you go, what treasure? I have no treasure. Oh, you have treasure. Stuff. You have stuff. Whether it be a phone, an iPad, a special watch, clothes you're wearing, the money in your account, whatever it is, Treasure. And there's nothing wrong with having treasure. Treasure serves a purpose. There's nothing wrong with having treasure, but when treasure has you, you're in trouble. Yeah. And God, here's the thing, we're holding on to our little pot of gold as if like, oh my gosh, get away. Nobody come near. And God's like, listen, I have so much more for you. You're, 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 you're holding on to two hours with your friends in Subway and Navin. I want to bring you to Sicily. God. God's got so much more, but the way we access more is giving up what we have and put to work for the kingdom. It was pastor and author, Craig who said this. He said, I believe Christians often perceive obedience to God as some test designed just to see if we're really committed to him. But what if it's designed as God's way of giving us what's best for us? So faith works in obedience. Number two, faith works in action. Action. Nothing causes more harm to the cause of Christ." Than this, when those who profess to follow Christ act nothing like Christ. And again, I'm not saying that we should all be perfect. Jesus is perfect. It's in our failing, in our falling, it's in our imperfection. And our desire to love God and obey God is evident. And people see the power of God at work in us as ordinary people called to an extraordinary purpose in Christ. But when people outright, blatantly, completely ignore the duality of, of, of I say I'm a Christian, but I literally am the meanest person in the workplace. I say I'm a Christian, but I'm the most stingy person in my family. I say I'm a Christian, but the most judgmental, self-righteous, narcissistic little Jesus father the world's ever seen. I can quote this book back to front, but don't look at my life for any evidence of it. And we see it all over the world, where people who say they follow Jesus speak, act, and look nothing like Jesus. And if you're one of those people, listen carefully, Jesus, Jesus had people like you around him too. And they weren't the 12 disciples, as you think they are. They were Pharisees. They knew the word. Oh, they loved the word. Loved to beat people over the head with it. But they themselves did not demonstrate in their own lifestyle the grace, peace, mercy, and love that Jesus required. The posture of every Christian should be humility. Humility. Because when I start to think about God's salvation in my life, and how broken I am, how stupid I am, how selfish I am, and how much God's grace and kindness and mercy has been poured out to me, my response should be, one well, not of hubris, but of humility. And we got to be careful, George. Those guys on YouTube, they're idiots. Stop watching them. If someone can't gather real people in three dimensions to listen to what they're saying, then just cut them off. Because the internet is filled with so much garbage of Christians pointing fingers and labeling and all these things. And I don't see Jesus doing any of it. In fact, in one crucial instance where this woman who was very sinful came into the presence of Jesus and did something kind for him and all the Pharisees, all the, the, the first century YouTubers that are attacking her. Jesus said this, she who has been forgiven much loves much. The posture of the church should be Humility. And we should recognize that faith isn't knowledge. And, f- and knowledge doesn't give us the right to condemn people. Faith, in essence, is action. Faith, purely in essence, is love in action. And for faith to really be faith, it transcends mere belief, knowing, and manifests itself in action, doing. It was the Apostle James, who was the first church leader in Jerusalem, who wrote this in James chapter 2. Verse 17, in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Think about it. Even though it isn't, when we say we put our faith in Jesus, we are saved. Even though we, we, it's not our action that saves us, we're putting our faith in the action of Jesus. He actually went to the cross. He actually was buried. He actually rose from dead. Our faith in his action saves us for all eternity. But once we have that worked into us, how we work faith out of us is through action. Not just, not just belief or opinion or thought or quoting Bible verses, but actually, what does my lifestyle say? Jesus said we shouldn't be caught up with you know, people's uh, outward appearance, their church logo, the denominational brand, what they wear, who quotes them. We should look at what does their life produce in terms of fruit. By their fruit, he said, you shall know them. To put our faith to work, we need to upgrade our faith from sentiment to service. From YouTube to actually volunteering in church. To actually go in the streets and helping homeless people. To actually praying for people when they go through catastrophes. To actually being something real that makes a difference in the real world. Why? Because if you don't grow in your faith... You can't go in which is the whole premise of the series for us to go and live out the good purpose of god we have to grow in our faith if i think back to my life it's like sometimes you think how did i end up here like where are, where, where are my 20s gone like how, how do i have four kids bizarre you know like maybe you stop and take stock and go how did i get here it's not like i had a plan i didn't have a plan. My plan was, whenever I get to a junction, and there's a choice, just like in the Garden of Eden, do I trust my own way and my own desire? And of course, there's always a, a whisper that's, that's given to us in the devil. Is God really able? Is God really good enough? Did God really say? Or, trust God. All I try to do, and I haven't always got it right, is just obey whatever I feel God has asked me to do. So when I first start following Jesus, and I was a choice of, Give up this nonsense that my family called a cult or leave my family home. I left home. When I got to a point where it's like, well, I can you know, keep this relationship going with this girl that I like uh, or I can make a commitment to her and marry her for the rest of my life, which is fine except at that point I was only 17 years old. I chose to marry her. She's right here. When it came to what I do with my life, will I, will I go and pursue selfish gain, to selfish end for myself? Or will I offer my life to God and say, God, I, I am, I am, I'm for you. Whatever you want me to do, I'll do. I did. And when, 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 the, when the opportunity came, and I laughed because it was, uh, it was uh, who was it? I forgot who it was, but said, it said, said opportunity is missed by most because it is dressed in overalls and looks like work. It was Thomas Edison said that. You know, it's funny because when I was given the opportunity uh, to move to Navum with our family and, and you know, replant the church, it, you know, it, was, it wasn't like it was enticing But it was obedience. And Sometimes, like we always say, we don't understand why things are working out. Sometimes it seems so much clearer, so much simpler, so much wiser to go this way. But listen to me, Jesus plus nothing is enough. Jesus plus nothing is enough. When 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 we bank our lives on Jesus, even though it makes no financial sense, practical sense, philosophic sense, even though our mother's going, are you crazy? We bank our life on Jesus. He will never, ever let us down. And my point is, when I look back at my life, what I see is in all these junctures and all these crossroads, there was, there, was an, there was an opportunity, there was a choice available. To put my faith into action and trust God, or go my own way. And again, I'm not the smartest tool in the box, but I have learned the hard way, that God's way is the best way. It was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. who said, you don't have to see the whole staircase to take your first step. Just take, a step, just take a step in front of you. What does God, God put in front of you and trust him for it? It was Mother who said this way. She said, faith in action is love and love in action is service. By transforming that faith into living acts of love, we put ourselves in contact with God himself, with Jesus our Lord. And I want to challenge us that next Sunday we're starting a brand new series called Don't Be Bold. And this whole series is about this idea that our faith it's got to manifest itself in action, not just in terms of serving and being, but also in speaking. There's such a battlefield of culture right now. And again, I thank God that we're, we live in a democratic society where people can believe whatever they want and everyone's equal and everyone has an entitlement to their belief. The problem is, is when we're told as Christians that we should sit down and shut up. And it's like, you know what? No, I won't sit down and shut up. I won't give in. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the name of Jesus. I'm not shy about my faith. I'm not going to sit down and be put away in some cupboard and labeled old or or obsolete because Jesus has changed my life. And I watched the, the mighty hand of Jesus change so many other people's lives. I will not stop talking about Jesus. And so for four weeks, starting next week, we're going to look at God's word and say, God, how can you give us courage to be bold in our generation and not be ashamed of the gospel? Why? Because evangelization isn't something you do in your mind. You speak the good news of Jesus. That's next week. Okay, so faith is obedience, faith is action. Lastly and thirdly, faith works in multiplication. Faith works in multiplication. Traditional views of spirituality often glorified faithfulness as steadfastness. In other words, what I mean is this. Oftentimes we go, oh, God bless old John. John's been here for 20 years. John's never given money in the offering, never served once, never been the connector, but you know, John's always been there. John is so faithful. And we go, yeah, that makes sense to us. But Jesus actually tells us in the Gospels that in the economy of God, faithfulness is not steadfastness, faithfulness is fruitfulness. God defines faithfulness as fruitfulness we need to multiply what has been given to us jesus tells us very challenging parable in matthew's gospel chapter 25 you can read the whole parable later on but the premise is this this master is going to go away to a foreign place calls in three employees gives one guy uh, ten bags of resource or sorry five bags of resource the other guy two bags of resource and the third guy one bag of resource and he says hey put it to work i'm going to leave and um, We're told, Jesus tells in the parable, that the guy who had five, put it to work, multiply, got ten. The guy with had two, put it to work, multiply, got four. The guy who had one was like, you know what, I know my boss. He's shrewd, he's stingy, he harvests where he hasn't sown, he doesn't always play a fair game. If I try put this resource to work and it doesn't work, I'm dead. So I'm going to bury my resource and sit on it. So when he comes back, I will say, see what you give me, I give back to you. The point is that the the servant in the story fundamentally misunderstands or misses the purpose of the resource. The master would actually have have congratulated him in a sense if he at least put the resource to work and lost because there was a chance of profit. But by sitting on it in his own hubris, his own arrogance, he decided, no, I'm going to decide what my master wants. And Jesus tells this very challenging parable to say to us as the church, listen, it's not good enough to sit in church. It's not good enough to have your Bible streak on your app. It's not good enough to attend all 10 weeks of the connect group. Your faith is more than those things. Those things serve us. Those things are tools. They're vehicles. But God has called us to multiply what he has given us. And one day, when we stand before God and give an account, it isn't like I was in 3,529 connect groups. It's like, with what I gave you, what did you do with it? I gave you the message of reconciliation. Did you tell anybody? I gave you spiritual gifts. Did you prophesy or pray? Were you generous? I put you in that street to be a light to those people. Do your, your parents know, your neighbors even know your name? Did you make the effort to go across that, that metaphorical or literal wall and say, Hey, my name is John. Don't be weird. Just be nice. Allow God to do the work. Like, like God has given us so many things, but we're so caught up with ourselves, our own world, and our own business that we miss the purpose of God for our lives. Jesus says to the two who, who took what was given to them and put it to work, the, 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 uh, the affirmation was well done, good and... because they were fruitful. One day we will stand before God, those in the room who are Jesus followers. And God will say, man... I worked in you to will according to my good purpose, your extraordinary purpose. What did you do with that extraordinary purpose? Your life now will be your legacy later. I know it seems like you're just, oh, it's so funny, isn't it? we're always looking forward to something. Oh, when I graduate this course, when I get that raise, when I, you know, it's, and our whole lives go by. The life you're living now will be the thing your kids talk about later. What are you living for? Jesus said, I've called you to an extraordinary life. An abundant life, a full life, a life that makes an eternal impact. You go, oh yeah, but like it's so hard. Like, people say things, people say things. It was John Bunyan, the famous author and Puritan preacher said, if my life is fruitless, it doesn't matter who praises me. It doesn't matter. If my life is fruitless, I don't care. The accolades are what people think of me. But if my life is fruitful, it doesn't matter who criticizes me because they won't be there in eternity, but Jesus will be. God has called us to work out our faith, obedience, action, and multiplying what is given to us. The famous psychologist Carl Jung was once asked a question about why don't we see God move in our world like, like we see in the Old Testament, like see God. And he said, well, it reminded him of a story of a rabbi who was asked the same question. Why don't we see God work in our day? And the rabbi responded, because people are no longer able to bow low enough to see God raised up high enough. That's a challenge, right? It's like, man, are we willing to bow? Is everything about us? Are we willing to humble ourselves before God? But also there is an opportunity that when we, as Jesus followers, when we as a church, are prepared to humble ourselves and bow low enough, when we're prepared to Work out our faith in obedience. Because obedience requires a bowing of values, a bowing of priorities, a bowing of opinions. When it requires us to work out our faith through action, trusting God that even though I can't see the whole staircase, I will take the first step. Understanding can wait, but obedience cannot. And when it comes to what have I got to offer God, don't compare yourself to the guy with five or two or ten. Take what I've given you and put it to work for the kingdom. Then we'll see God move in our generation. Then you will see God move in your life. Then you'll see God move in your family. Then we will see God move in Ireland and the nations beyond. So as we close our series then, we're going to pray in just a moment. What are our three faithful takeaways? Well, back in week one, we learned that faith comes by the word of God. And for the word to be in us, we need to be in the word. When we, when, we, when, we, when we take time and prioritize God's word, we build our lives on a solid rock. Week two, faith comes by the will of God. And it is for the will of God to be done in that world, the will of God must first be done in my world. For the kingdom of God to break out into my marriage, my workplace, my co-workers, my friends, my siblings, has to first be real in my life. And today, part three to close, faith comes By doing the work of God. And for our faith to work, we have to work our faith. As we commit ourselves in 2024 to these three things, that's how we become full of faith. That's how we grow and go in faith. That's how we see the purpose of God for our life become manifest and made real in our lives and evident to all those part of our lives. My prayer for you as we close, not just the message, but the series. It's that you be full of faith. Maybe you're here, you're not a Jesus follower. But today, for the first time, you would open your heart and allow yourself to be full of faith. Maybe you're tired and beaten up and weary. Like, man, I don't know if I can carry on. Let the Holy Spirit fill you afresh today with that faith. Maybe you're someone who's living this duplicitous life, like, yeah, I'm a Christian, but you know, you could never, if you didn't know that, you'd never really know. And God said, hey, I'm, I'm challenging you to step up. Out of, that, out of that mediocrity into extraordinary purpose so your life will count and we can make an impact in this world God has called us to be full of faith and today as we close off and pray the band are going to come in a second and lead us in a song and as they sing the song it isn't just Christian karaoke Don't be just singing the words for no reason think pray God what are you saying to me right now through this message what are you trying to challenge in me where, where am I not being obedient? Where is my fate not working out in action? Where am I sitting on my talent? And if you allow God to speak to you, and if you're brave and courageous to actually do something about the thing that God said to you, here is the promise of God. He will work in you according to His good will and according to His good purpose for your life. And my prayer, my dream for us is that we would be an ordinary church, living out our faith, according to God's extraordinary purpose. Amen?